is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast, Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Daniel Chereau. Daniel spent decades as a professor writing extensively about the topics of genocide and authoritarian regimes. He's authored over a dozen books. Most recent will be the subject we talk about today. It is entitled, You Say You Want a Revolution, Radical Idealism and Its Tragic Consequences. Daniel, thank you so much for being with me today. Hello. So you focus on major revolutions that have taken place throughout history. Uh, you discuss in particular American, French, Russian, Iranian revolutions, among others. And of course, the most infamous of all that's probably the one most discussed in society would be the Nazi takeover uh, of Germany. So there's, I'm sure there's unique circumstances with each, but do you see common overlapping variables between the revolutions you've studied? Are there um, similarities in terms of the situations on the ground in those countries? Are there similarities in terms of the leaders who start the revolutions? Have you identified commonalities within these case studies? There are some. What happens before revolutions, well before, is that in certain societies and certain nations, there are problems that accumulate and that do not get addressed. And they simply accumulate, don't get addressed, and then some sort of crisis occurs, a depression, a war, something. And it turns out that the regime, whatever the system is, has very little legitimacy. And that's when revolutions tend to occur. They don't always. It's very difficult to predict way ahead of time when something is going to happen. Of course, I don't remember the French Revolution or the American Revolution. I remember the Iranian Revolution because I mean, that was in 1978-79. Even though at that time, our intelligence services, or at least at the top, didn't seem to recognize what was going on, it turns out that people who were close to the ground, including some Americans who were in Iran, knew that Problems were accumulating. The Shah of Iran and his regime were not addressing them. They were imprisoning and silencing liberal opponents, leaving the way open to more radicals who were better at hiding, who were like the Ayatollah Khomeini in exile. And then when it blew open, all of a sudden, supposedly, we, that is to say, the American government was surprised. Well, it shouldn't have been. Uh, and uh, I remember that I had... Uh, I had been working with a graduate student who spent the year before in Iran. He wasn't working on politics. He was working on demography. But uh, he came back and he said, this place is going to blow up. There's so much discontent, this constant rioting. And the regime, the Shah, is unpopular. He's unpopular with people on the left. He's unpopular with people in the middle. He's unpopular with people uh, on the right, with the religious people. So it turns out that there are similar circumstances, and not always, but it increases the potential for revolution, and then revolutions take place. And in all those cases, if the problems had been addressed earlier, it could have been avoided. You can take the American Revolution. You know, all the leading colonists, and they weren't radical rabble-rousers, not, not very many of them, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, they were all part of the elite in a sense, um, Madison. Uh, and all they really wanted was some recognition from Parliament and from England that they would have some voice. And the British government just ignored it and ignored it and, and imposed taxes, which weren't huge, but simply didn't pay attention to the rising discontent. And then something happened. Uh, in France, for the French Revolution, there were six or seven decades uh, beforehand, a fiscal crisis, and the elite kept on blocking increased taxes, the aristocracy and the lords of the church. And the financial situation got worse and worse. It got much worse at the time of the American Revolution because the French spent a lot of money helping the Americans. By the way, 
you, you know, I mean, we, we do know that without French help, it's unlikely that the colonists would have won the war, but completely bankrupted the French government. And finally, the king and his advisors didn't know what to do, so they called the Estates General, and there's a whole series of events that took place. And then what happened was that the court, the royal court and the aristocracy, dug their heels in and refused to make the compromises that uh, could have saved them. And that opened the way to more radical forces who said, look, we're never going to get an agreement. And also there was a foreign invasion. And though that isn't always the case, the foreign invasions help the revolutionaries because people rally around the flag, so to speak. And that's what happened in the French Revolution. So um, intervention by Prussia and Austria and the refusal of the court to make compromises uh, opened the door to radicals who then... Uh, produced a bloodbath and uh, all sorts of things which followed. And that happened in Iran as well. It didn't happen in the United States. Uh, the radicals never got control, in part because the British didn't fight to the bitter end. They could have held on longer, but they recognized this is a hopeless situation. Of course, that's what happened in Russia as well. Um, the Tsarist regime had been compromised for a long time. It was incompetent. It was corrupt. And the crisis of World War I just blew it open. And in the case of Nazi Germany, there wasn't a violent revolution. The violence really only started on a large scale once the Nazis came to power. But the Weimar Republic had low legitimacy and was unable to deal with the economic crisis. And that opened the way for the electoral success of the Nazis, who then did conduct a revolution. Uh, I'll add as a final comment that most people who study revolutions don't like to include the Nazis or Mussolini, who uh, conducted what they believed to be revolutions and certainly tried to transform their societies and the Nazis did. And they don't like to include that, those cases of fascism because the majority of people who study revolutions tend to be more on the left and to like revolutions. And certainly the Nazis were not on the left. So they'll find excuses for the violence in the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, less so with the Iranian Revolution, which doesn't fit right or left particularly well, and not at all with the Nazi revolution, which really only took place after they came into power. A couple things on the, on the French Revolution, then I want to ask you about the specifics about the Nazis versus communists. So the French Revolution is something that I've recently taken an interest in because aside from sort of the basics, I didn't have an in-depth understanding of it. I think the vast majority of Americans you know, have, have struggled with their own history, let alone the French. It is such an interesting revolution in juxtaposed to the American one, because in a lot of ways, it sort of set the, the groundwork for some of the chaos we'd see in like the 20th century. It was real, you know, for lack of a better term, a shit show, right? And like, whereas the American Revolution um, had some sort of you know, resolution and then it seemed like the French one went on for decades and decades and decades and on and off between revolutions and all the way up until what, like the mid to late 19th century, they were still having revolutions and overthrowing the empire and all that. Well, by the way, let me interject. The last time there was an attempted uh, military coup in France was in 1961. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and there was one in 1958, and it succeeded. It brought Charles de Gaulle back to power. Right. And then the army and the far right wing, when they saw that he was going to give up Algeria, tried to conduct another coup and were defeated. So, um, and in the early 1940s, when France was occupied, the same dispute between pro-revolution and anti-revolution actually broke out and had a lot to do with the way in which the Vichy regime collaborated with the Nazis. It's a complicated story, but it's it's beyond the late 19th century. Okay. And now there's actually a, a, a presidential candidate who's sort of trying to revive that. But I, I think I think now the French Revolution is over. But it, you're right; it took a very long time. And the French Revolution became much more of a model for revolutionaries than the American Revolution. Because the radicals eventually took power. Yeah. Do you think there's anything sort of endemic to French culture? Why do you think that they just had such a, a struggle with with the revolution, with sort of trying to establish a stable government, whereas the United States, you know, well, we had a civil war, but uh, largely our, the result of our prosperity is, is due to the stability of, of the government. Obviously, we never had a war fall on our soil and all that. What do you think it is about the, the French Revolution, which kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier and just almost never ending? No, I don't think it has anything to do specifically with French culture because there have been revolutions. I mean, how long has it taken for the Russian Revolution to get resolved? Is it resolved today? 
you know, communism seemed to establish a very bloody, at least during Stalinist times, very repressive regime. Then it fell apart. But what's going on right now? Putin is trying to reestablish the Soviet empire in a way. And there's still questions about what that revolution meant. The same thing in China. The Communist Party, after a long civil war, finally won in 1949. Is it over? It's not completely over because Xi Jinping says, well, the last remnant is Taiwan, and maybe there'll be a pretty bloody war over that. With respect to the American Revolution, I know what's taught in schools. I know what I learned in school. I went to school in upstate New York, so I, I didn't get the Southern view. By the way, my first job after graduate school was at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And there I found out from the students, not from the faculty, because most of the faculty were actually Yankees. But uh, I found out from the students that it wasn't the Civil War. It was the War of Northern Aggression. <laughs> and they weren't taught that there never had been a war after the revolution on American soil. And today, look at the situation we're in with a divided country, and the issue of race is still unresolved. Now, you can look at the American Revolution and say, yes, it was a success. Um, the old elite kept control, right? George Washington, Madison, those people, they were the elite. They kept control. There were some radicals. They put them down. They weren't very important. But they didn't address one of the fundamental problems, which was slavery. And there was a civil war. And the latest estimates on the civil war is that perhaps over 700,000 men, mostly men, because there wasn't very much killing of civilians, unlike in some other wars. The old figure was 600,000. The newest estimates say 750,000. It doesn't really matter uh, which one of those numbers. They're huge numbers. The population of the United States at that time, of the entire United States, was a little over 30 million. So we have 10 times as many people. So what would this country be like if we had just had a civil war and uh, 7 million people had been killed? That was the proportion. And the Civil War didn't solve the situation either. I mean, there was Reconstruction, and then Reconstruction stopped, and you know the whole story. And that unsolved problem left over from the American Revolution that caused so much bloodshed during the Civil War still isn't resolved, and, and, and we don't know what's going to happen. The conflict is, again, very serious. And there are even some people saying we could drift into another kind of Civil War. What do you mean by not resolved? That racial animosity, the leftover legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow, is still there, and it's a very contentious subject, how it's going to be taught, what people are going to learn about it, and it's destabilizing the politics of the United States. And it's part, not the only reason, but part of the reason why we're such a divided society. The issue of race and its legacy is heating up in a very alarming way. And I think one doesn't have to be on either side of the debate to recognize that it's far from over. Is it, though, a race thing today? Or it seems to be more of a partisan or ideological thing, right? I mean, it's not like you have a, for example, you're talking about race in terms of African-Americans and Caucasians, right? So obviously, race is very multifaceted. You have Hispanics, which were once overwhelmingly on one side now are essentially split voters. Our tribal divisions aren't exactly racial, though, anymore as much as they are. There's a racial component, but it's more so partisan and regional, right? It's difficult for me to see how that relates back to, say, the Civil War. It relates back to the issue of slavery um, and uh, to the racial distinctions that you're right, in a sense, it's purely political. People who study uh, biology, ethnicity, recognize that these distinctions are political and they fluctuate over time. In the South, when there were a lot of Italian immigrants, there was a big debate, are they white or not? Uh, today, that sounds silly. There was a book written, How the Irish Became White, uh, because when they first came, they were looked at as racial inferiors. And obviously, it wasn't a question of skin color. Uh, I remember during the height of the Yugoslav Wars through the mid and even into the late 1990s, but this was at the height of the war between Serbia and Croatia. I gave some public lectures, and at one point, a woman raised her hand, and she happened to be African-American, and she said, you're telling us that there's an ethnic war in Yugoslavia. Is there a difference in race? I said, 
do you mean, is there a difference in skin color? And she said, yes. I said, no. She said, could we tell if we went? I said, no, you wouldn't be able to tell. But they talk in terms of race. And uh, Croats had a whole mythology about how they were really a superior race to the Serbs. Now, it was a complete fantasy, but it doesn't matter. That's what they believed. And so when you talk about tribal, it can take many different forms. Uh, it can be different clans. It can be different language groups. Americans asked who were interested in the Yugoslav wars, so what's the difference? I said, well, they speak a common language. There were lots of different dialects, and when the country came together, they settled on a particular version that became what was called Serbo-Croatian. Now in Yugoslavia, they claim to have a separate language for Croatian, a separate language for Serbian, a separate language for Montenegrin. It's all a matter of political definition. In the very late 19th and early 20th century, the big issue about ethnicity was between uh, those who were, wanted to pursue an anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish position and those who didn't want to do that. Um, that's not much of an issue today in France. In 1900, the issue of immigration was not a big issue in France. Today, it's a big issue in France because in 1900, there weren't that many immigrants coming to France. And the ones who came, there were, but they were absorbed pretty easily. So, uh, so the issues change from place to place. If you go to Nigeria, where there are what we call tribal conflicts, or what happened in Rwanda, which is very well known, uh, uh, then you see different supposed tribes. In the case of Nigeria, they speak different languages. In Rwanda, they didn't speak different languages. To explain what their definition was of tribe or of ethnicity, you have to get into the specifics. But those sorts of Distinctions exist everywhere and can easily become a matter of conflict in desperate times. And revolutions are desperate times, so they bring out often the very worst of these conflicts. Yeah, I I guess I just have trouble in terms of uh, when looking. So, civil war was obviously race was the forefront of that uh, slavery, of course. And then you had you know the whole Reconstruction thing, and you you know the, the parties themselves have shifted over time. Uh, there was once a point in, in American history, obviously, where majority African Americans were on the Republican side, uh, then the Democratic side, and then there was once a point in time where we were much, much more of a class-based uh, division, right, where you had working class people, white and black, on the same side of something, and then you had the elites, were overwhelmingly white, because we're talking about, say, the 50s or something like that, but we're all on a different side as well. And then you look, you go into the sort of the 80s and 90s, and I think that was probably our apex in terms of racial cohesion. Today, you know, the people who you see rail most incessantly about matters of race are often white liberals, right? <laughs> who, and I make this joke all the time, who actually have no connections to like African-American community. Like there are people like the, in Santa Monica, you know, who, who I see these people all the time with no black friends, have no association with African-Americans. And then the second that they see an African-American take a political point of view that they don't like, they will attack them mercilessly. I, I think it was Ayanna Presley who said, you know, we can't just have uh, black faces who are not black voices, suggesting that there's some sort of political element to being black. It's not just enough that you're black. You have to be for certain causes that they consider is black, right? So the most pertinent example would be the defund the police movement, which was something not supported in the actual African-American communities, but was something that, you know, a lot of these uh, white progressives took upon themselves to pursue <laughs> when it wasn't actually favored by the people on the ground. So it's, it's complicated in that respect, and that's why I have difficulties sort of drawing it back to the Civil War when you look at all sorts of metrics like interracial marriage, that we're making a lot more progress than some people would want us to believe. Well, I mean, first of all, um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to defend the radical left. I do live in Seattle, and uh, uh, what happened here was that um, – radical leftists got a hold of the city council and started to defund the police. And in the most recent election, they lost badly. A much more moderate group took back control, really won the mayoral, mayor's race. You're absolutely right that the leaders of the far-left radicals in Seattle were trying to use this issue of race, which has been a problem with police forces all over, but they were trying to use that to push their own agenda 
And you're absolutely right that what happened, I mean, we now have an African-American mayor. We, we had one before, much more moderate than the radicals. And you're quite right that, that in general, uh, minorities who live in some of the most difficult parts of Seattle were absolutely opposed to defunding the police. They wanted reforms, but they wanted, if anything, more police, not less police, because they were subject to more violence. So you're absolutely right about that. And there was an attempt to use that, and it hasn't really worked anywhere. It didn't even work in Minneapolis, where much of this started. But I will insist that the way we phrase a lot of problems does relate back to the original sin that the revolution didn't really solve the problem. Uh, and one reason was that the very uh, liberal, liberal in the classical sense, who believed in individual rights and in the Enlightenment, people like George Washington or James Madison. Uh, I'm not talking about John Adams. He was of the early presidents, the only one who didn't have slaves. The others all had slaves. Uh, they actually knew it was wrong. And they believed that it would just fade away. And the opposite happened uh, because of the invention of the cotton gin and the Industrial Revolution in England, the demand for cotton went up. I mean, we, we know the story. In his old age, uh, Jefferson long retired. We know a lot about what he was thinking because he kept on exchanging letters, very a whole lot of letters with John Adams, who had been his political enemy, but they reconciled through the mail. Uh, he was very upset about what was happening to the United States in many ways. Uh, he also thought that uh, religion would sort of fade away, and, <laughs> and it certainly wasn't. He, and he saw that, and he hoped that slavery would fade away, even though he himself was a slave owner. Uh, people ask why he didn't free his slaves when it was clear that he knew it was wrong. He couldn't free his slaves. He was such a spendthrift and so much in debt that he didn't really own anything. <laughs> Uh, you know, the problem wasn't solved and it's never really been solved. And, and it's one of the things exacerbating the differences. Uh, when, uh, uh, but you're also very right. And, and here, I, uh, like many other people, I didn't really understand where we were heading. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and into the 90s, it seemed that we had addressed that problem. Things were getting better. Uh, Martin Luther King had become a hero. There was a national holiday. We eventually got a, a, a black president. But even Republicans in those days um, weren't going to go back on civil rights legislation or on uh, voting. Uh, and uh, the Supreme Court was fairly moderate. It seemed that things really were going to, or that particular issue is going to disappear, and, and it hasn't. You can say the same thing about the French Revolution. I mean, there have been times in France when it seemed, uh, well, all right, the disputes raised in, at the time of the French Revolution are gone, and then they reappear. Uh, and they, they really reappeared most strongly in the middle of, of the 20th century in France. And, and, and it should have been a surprise, but some things never really disappear. And revolutions typically don't really solve problems. The Iranian revolution certainly hasn't uh, solved Iran's problems. With Iran, a lot of the way that, for example, Khomeini was propelled to power was through outside forces. A lot of people would say that, you know, my mom was, was on the ground there at the time, and this is a view shared by the vast majority of Persians who were around at the time, was that the British were instrumental in well, first, installing the Shah's father, as well were the Americans. But then, due to issues over things like oil... The overthrow of Mossadegh, right? So Mossadegh, and then obviously, you know, the Shah's father was supported by the Europeans uh, installed. And then relations got frosty, uh, and a large part of that was due to their view that he wasn't playing ball anymore, and that he was using the oil proceeds and nationalizing the oil companies and all that. And so... You know, the BBC and these British entities would be pushing out and disseminating Khomeini propaganda into the country. If you look at someone like Carter's Secretary of State at the time, there was in his letters, he talks very favorably about Khomeini and how this should, uh, we should support him. And the view shared by a lot of people in the, 
the European countries as well. To what extent do you think outside forces can have an impact on revolutions? Like, do revolutionaries need to have a substantial percent of support on the ground? Or, for example, in, the, in Hitler's case, he only won, what, like 25% of, of support when he ran? Well, there were two elections, and uh, it was close to 40% in 1932, and then it fell back. But uh, the parliamentary system there, like many parliamentary systems, never produced majorities. It was the biggest party, and then it was up to the biggest party to try to bring together a coalition. And a coalition was brought together that that brought him into power. So uh, the Nazi party was the biggest party. Now, with respect to Iran, um, I, I, I don't, I don't believe what you're saying um, about Mossadegh and the overthrow of what was a liberal regime. Very much, the British and the Americans intervened, though the clerics who took power never mentioned the fact that at the time they were not unfavorable to the Shah because they thought there was a better chance that religion would be supported by him than by a liberal. Western-looking man. It was a terrible mistake by the Americans and the British. Um, uh, uh, I don't think that there's any evidence that the British or any European power, Western European power, wanted Khomeini to come into power. There's tons of evidence. Do you think the Europeans installed the Shah's father? The Shah's father, yes, and the Shah's father was overthrown by the British and the Americans with Soviet support during World War II because there was a, they were afraid that he might want to collaborate with the Nazis uh, and that he wasn't receptive enough. And they put the young Shah, who was considered uh, an irresponsible playboy in power, and uh, then it turned out that as he matured, he remained in many ways irresponsible, but he was certainly no pushover. Uh, and But they came to... to uh, an acceptance of the nationalization of the oil companies because they could still get the oil, just as they did with Saudi Arabia and all the others. And Iraq, until they didn't, right? Well, everyone everyone did. Uh, but, uh, I mean, what you can say if you're looking for some evidence from the West is that the French have a tradition of uh, allowing exile, political exiles to operate in their countries. And Khomeini was producing his tapes while in exile in France. France has a, has a uh, reputation for accepting exiles from all over the place. Uh, some not so reputable, uh, some on the left, some on the right. Uh, and France also has, uh, in part because of its revolutionary tradition and the fact that it's been mostly a democracy with open discussion has had um, far-left intellectuals in universities who have helped train and energize all sorts of revolutionaries. Uh, the leadership of the Khmer Rouge, uh, many of the Chinese communists spent time there and actually spoke French. Uh, the British did some of that too. Uh, so as open democracies, they tolerated a lot of exiles. The United States was very closely tied to the Shah, the last Shah. Yeah, it was, a pre- it was a preference, yeah. By the time Carter came into power, there was not a preference anymore. Many people who had been in the middle class, particularly young people uh, who had joined with enthusiasm in the overthrow of the Shah, realized what a terrible situation they had put themselves in uh, and were, in retrospect, very sorry. Of course, that happened with many revolutions, that the moderates in the most extreme cases, and particularly when there's direct outside intervention that rallies people around, allows the radicals to take power. And then once they have full power, they wipe out the middle and even the people on their side who don't fully support them. And the Iranian regime certainly did that. Uh, And the the reign of terror was all about that. And the communists did that. And the Nazis did that and so on. So, um, and in that respect, the American Revolution really was different, though tens of thousands uh, of Tory support, of uh, English supporters did leave uh, and went to Canada or other parts of the British Empire or to, or to Great Britain itself, including one of Benjamin Franklin's sons. Didn't side with his father uh, on the side of the revolutionaries. 
Uh, Benjamin Franklin is an interesting case. He came quite late to the realization that a revolution was a good idea. He hoped desperately that the British Parliament would compromise. And if it had, things would have worked out probably the way they later did. The British did learn their lesson. And then uh, when there were stirrings of independence in Canada or Australia, they said, good, control your own affairs. And those places remained allied and very close to, to Great Britain for a long time afterwards. They could have done that with the United States, but they didn't. Let me talk to you about uh, Germany. The, and I want your, your take on this. So I'm sure you probably come across this passage. There's a famous passage from an essay written by the uh, German poet Heinrich Heine, who was born into a Jewish family. Uh, are you familiar with this one? About he, It was essentially it was 1834, I believe he produced it, and it's a couple paragraphs long. He essentially predicted some of the horrible forces coming to power in Germany. Uh, you know, he didn't have a terribly rosy view of the Germans. And to paraphrase him, he essentially said that the only thing holding the Germans back to the extent they are held back from returning back to being savages uh, is the prominence of Christianity. And you know, once the pr predominance of Christianity dissipates and it's coming, uh, you're going to see a level of mayhem from the Germans that the world's never seen before. And then he ended it by saying, you know, it's going to make the French Revolution look like an innocent idol. Uh, so I saw Barry Weiss reference this quote in the Substack not too long ago. Do you, do you think that there was anything inevitable about Hitler? Do you think there was anything unique about Germany that made it prone to somebody like Hitler coming to power? Obviously, he came to power during a time of economic turmoil. But a lot of countries had economic turmoil. Obviously, Germany had anti-Semitism. But a lot of countries, as you well know, Europe have had a lot of anti-Semitism. What do you think it was about Germany that set the groundwork for someone like Hitler, whereas the other countries that were in bad positions didn't have something like that? It was just chance? Well, what's your take on it? Well, this is also a, a, a very contentious subject in scholarship. Um, you know, I, I know the name of the famous German poet you referenced, but I actually have never read any of his poetry. I've just read about him, and I don't know that poem. Much more recently, a best-selling book by uh, someone who was a historian at Harvard, Daniel Goldhagen, <coughs> wrote a book saying just that, that even without Hitler, it would have happened because that was part of what Germany was. On the other hand, you're right. If in 1900, when this wasn't actually foreseen, you had talked about among the major countries in Europe, who was the most, where was there the most anti-Semitism outside of Russia? Russia still had anti-Jewish laws at that time, but in the West, it was France, much more than Germany. And that remained a very powerful force in France, but they didn't have Nazism. So uh, uh, I don't actually believe that there's something inherent in German character or in any national character that makes it certain that something terrible is going to happen. But there are institutions and there are histories. Uh, and uh, if Germany hadn't lost World War I, the Nazis would have never existed. Uh, if there hadn't been a depression, by 19, though, you know, there was the attempted coup that the Nazis conducted in 1923 in Munich. And Hitler was jailed, but very nicely jailed. He had a secretary and a sort of a little apartment where he could write his autobiography, Mein Kampf. Um, but by the late 20s, by 1928, 27, 28, they were a marginal group getting 2%, 3% of the vote. So if it hadn't been for the Depression, then um, the Nazis never would have come to power. And then there have been some very good careful studies about how the Nazis came to power. And even in uh, January of 1933, it wasn't inevitable. Um, what brought Hitler to power was that, and this is something, this is a lesson actually in general that we should learn. What brought Hitler to power was that the conservatives who controlled the government, the president von Hindenburg, who personally despised Hitler, he kept on ref referring to him as that Austrian corporal. I don't actually think 
Hitler was ever promoted to corporal, but if he was, he was, he was definitely not in the ranks of the aristocracy. The conservatives were unable to muster parliamentary majorities, and they saw that the populist appeal of the Nazis could get them vote. But they, von Hindenburg, his son, who was very influential because Hindenburg was already an old man verging on senility. Sounds familiar. With our current situation, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> they, they thought they could control Hitler. And their idea was, look, better put him in power than to come to an agreement with the Social Democrats. Because they considered the Social Democrats, who were quite moderate, to be no better than the communists. And for them, the center left was just as bad as the far left. They all, were all lumped together. So better to compromise with the far right, let them come to power, uh, and we'll be able to control them. And then they found out they couldn't control them. And some of their leading figures actually wound up being executed in the night of the Long Knives uh, by Hitler. Uh, and von Papen came very close to, to, to getting it. He was, he was saved and sent off to be ambassador to Turkey. But, and Hindenburg died. And uh, this is the kind of mistake that does occur frequently. The more moderate right think so badly of the moderate left that they're willing to compromise and work with the far right. And as happened in the Russian revolution, the moderate left is so dismissive of the moderate right that they choose to work with the far left and think they can control them. What allowed the Bolsheviks to take power was that at the time of the Kornilov affair, uh, Kerensky, who was a moderate socialist, distributed arms to communists because he thought the only way to save the situation from the right was to arm the far left. And they, they used those weapons to overthrow Kerensky and, and conduct the October Revolution. So this is a very common mistake, and it's something that we're at risk of experiencing in this country. If the moderate left can't come to an agreement with the moderate right, what that does is the moderate right winds up allying itself with the far right, and the moderate left winds up allying itself with the far left. And then you get the clash of extremes, which is what you were talking about earlier. And you thought that perhaps I was going to defend the far left. I'm not trying to defend the far left. No, no, no. No, that's not what I was getting at, no. That's one of the tragedies of these situations where uh, opinion becomes so polarized that you wind up with two groups in the middle can't compromise. One of the reasons we had a better political atmosphere in the 60s and 70s, or even in the 50s, uh, really all through the 70s and 80s, uh, and it started to change in the 90s, was that the moderates on both sides worked with each other and dominated. I mean, uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, when Eisenhower was president. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1960, which was the last year of Eisenhower's term, and I was already very interested in politics. You know, of course, the Democrats fought against Eisenhower, but he was really well-liked by pretty much everyone. And even people who disagreed with him weren't afraid of him. And that was even true of Richard Nixon, actually, who was in many ways a very successful president. Unfortunately, his personal paranoia got in the way. And he, uh, I mean, that was a real tragedy. Uh, but the, even the same thing with Lyndon Johnson, who was really only hated by white Southern racists for civil rights. But uh, and even Ronald Reagan, I mean, uh, I remember, uh, you know, a few I, I would hear sometime in universities, oh, if Ronald Reagan wins, I'm going to leave the country. Well, I don't know anyone that yeah. actually left the country. You know, you could disagree with, or with, with George H.W. Bush, but they weren't frightening and they worked with the opposition. I mean, they, they Reagan got a lot of things done when Congress was controlled by Democrats. Once you lose that then you're in danger because the split gets wider and wider and then the extremes get too much power. And that's what happens in revolutions. We're, we're not at a revolutionary stage, but we're not addressing major problems and we're splitting apart so that in a time of crisis, if we have a depression or so on, some terrible things could happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think with our country's context, so you saw that first bit of polarization and sort of extremes taking over in the late 60s with the Vietnam War. Then things tempered down a bit. And then I think this new wave really started as a result of the Iraq War, which, 
you know, I was always against. I always thought it was absolutely ridiculous. I'm not a not a fan of imperialism or you know neocon nation building or anything of that nature. Um, although I'm usually on the side of of the right, I just you know I don't actually think that represents what traditionally the right has been about. It's just this idea that you that you have to you know expand your uh, your territories overseas and you know to, to nation build and all that. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I want to ask you a question though on returning back to the German example. I'm actually curious about this. So you said so Hitler represented the far right, and then the conservatives sided with Hitler over the Social Democrats. So Hitler represented himself uh, initially. He would he would play in the socialist circle. So what differentiated Hitler, who would use these socialist terms and would talk about nationalization of major industries and expanding welfare state and all that crap? Um, what differentiated him? from the social democrats in Germany at the time, that they were on different sides? Quite a few things. So uh, it is true that the Nazi party's name had the word socialism in it. But, uh, and it's true that in building a war economy, the government took more and more. It didn't actually dispossess any capitalists. It built its own factories there uh, and yeah, you know, it, it reminds me of China kind of now with the CCP, where the state is the, the, the party and the state are kind of intervening in every part of culture. Right. You can have capitalism, but we're going to call the shots. It's a mixed model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I would call the regime in China a, a, a typical fascist regime uh, because it does run in the same way, unlike Maoism, which tried to take over everything, which is what the communists did. Um, and it really didn't work very well. I lived for a year in communist Romania. I was doing research there. That's where I did my the research for my doctoral dissertation. And I saw at a very basic level how things weren't working well and the frustration of people. I'm not talking about big political ideals, but, but going to the grocery store and never finding what you wanted, having to wait in line all the time having to bribe minor officials for little things. Uh, and uh, I mean, you got a sense that this wasn't working. So uh, that's not what fascism was about. And, that, and, and the Chinese Communist Party has certainly learned that. I don't think they're planning to take over little restaurants. Uh, but in any case, so what Hitler capitalized on the fear of communism and accusing the Social Democrats, who were quite moderate, of being no better than communists. Uh, I mean, we hear that today. We hear, we hear attacks against Biden, that he's really a, from the far right, that he's really a communist. He's not a communist. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I never, yeah, I've never heard that. That's or accusations against Franklin Roosevelt, the, the days of the New Deal. So, you know, these are people who wanted some reform, but they, they weren't real socialists. The other difference is that the Social Democrats and even the more conservative forces like those around Hindenburg, who may have had a good many anti-Semitic sentiments, never would have conducted the Holocaust, never would have conducted extermination. That was a specific Nazi program. It wasn't even the military's program. You know, in, early, in the early 30s, there was some thought that the military might take over, and they might have. And uh, if they had if they'd been better organized, they could have. And then there might have been a war with Poland, but they never, because uh, to re-annex the corridor, we don't need to get into the specifics of that, but there never would have been an attempted extermination of the Jews. And with Hitler, it was obvious. If you, if you actually read Mein Kampf, a good part of it is just hatred as fear of the Jews. And you get some of that here when say when you hear people say on the some on the far right, you know, they will not replace us. I mean this notion, or we even have someone in Congress, a woman who said that the COVID epidemic was some sort of rave coming from satellites put up by the Rothschilds. This is a very old old-fashioned and out-of-date anti-Semitic slur. Um, back in uh, the late 19th century, the Rothschild banks were very powerful. They're not really running much of anything now. They're a large investment firm today. Yeah, right. They are, right. along with many others. But I mean, there was a yeah. time when they were much more politically influential. Yeah, right. Um, but in any case, uh, 
uh, Hitler's anti-Semitic program went way beyond what uh, even most anti-Semitic Germans wanted. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and you know, the Nazi reign was such a catastrophe for Germany that Germany really did change. And I don't have any sense. There is a far right party in, uh, in Germany. Uh, it's mostly in Eastern Germany. Uh, and there's a reason for that because uh, when there was a communist East Germany, they didn't teach the real history of Nazism. They said, all the Nazis are now in West Germany and we didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and, but in West Germany, it was taught in the schools and, you know, Germany is not uh, what it what it used to be. So uh, I don't know that there's anything specific about German character, but there is something specific about German history. And that is the catastrophe of World War I, the catastrophe of the depression, the inability of the Weimar Republic to handle that. And then the misjudgment, uh, there's certain historical figures. And this is something that social science, whether it's economics or sociology or political science, really cannot handle. And that is there are certain individuals who have a certain hold over their followers that is almost mystical. And in some sense, Donald Trump has that, you know, whether you like him or not. He has some sort of hold over his followers. And, and you know, most politicians don't. You know, most politicians, uh, even successful ones, may win elections, but they don't have this kind of mystical hold. Hitler had that. And, you know, it's Germany's bad luck that, <laughs> that he came along at just the right yeah. time for him. Uh, and uh, so most scholars, so I don't know if you know Daniel Goldhagen's book, it was uh, called Hitler's Willing Executioners. It was a bestseller. And it, I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, and mm -hmm. most scholars didn't agree with his argument that there was something inherent, inherent in Germany. Uh, but certainly, once Hitler comes to power, yes. Yeah, I, I would, uh, one thing I would say about that bit is, I do think they do have more of a authoritarian kind of culture than a lot of the Europeans do. Like even my friends and I know, so when we went to Germany, they're nice, but like it is a very like command, commandeering kind of culture. And, and they've been like that throughout uh, a large portion of time. They are, they have that, uh, that side to them. Um, but obviously you know, there's no telling that would manifest in a you know, Holocaust or anything of that nature. But Certainly, relative to like you know Italians, right? They're they're very right. They're very commanding kind of culture, right? And I think in that quote I mentioned to you, I think that's kind of you know uh, pointing to that a bit. Um, with respect to the, oh, the question the way, I, I asked say, you, Shlomo, I should say yeah. something about that because um, mm -hmm. some of my family is Swiss. One of my uncles moved to Switzerland from France. Um, in the early 50s, and he married a Swiss woman. His children, who are my generation, are Swiss, and I've been in Switzerland a lot. And that's a, not politically, but personally, very authoritarian society. Uh, I remember walking in the street once and uh, throwing a, a little piece of paper, and I aimed it at a waste paper basket, and it missed, and I walked by, and this woman came running after me and started haranguing me about going back to pick up that piece of paper and putting it in the proper place. <laughs> and that wouldn't have happened in Italy. So uh, uh, having, that, uh, having that kind of a, uh, an authoritarian uh, leaning doesn't necessarily produce the kind of outcome that occurred in Germany. I mean, Switzerland is not a place they're actually, they can be pretty intolerant about a lot of things. Uh, yeah. my, my, my Swiss cousin, when he first came here to visit, he looked, and Seattle is not the, the most disorderly city in the United States. He said, how come people are driving around with dents in their cars and don't fix them right away? <laughs> but is Switzerland going to start persecuting Jews or anyone else? Is it authoritarian politically? No. So... So you're right about German culture in some way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to all become Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, of course. I, yeah, it's just it's just interesting. Obviously, there's so many different variables as we discussed, but you know, it's um, the, the whole you know we know the whole trope of following orders and you know 
try try to get you know like like Spaniards or something to follow orders that precisely right good or bad you know like the, the, with the, with the Germans you I think if you implement that kind of evil the Germans are going to be more efficient at it than other cultures right because of the, because of that that cultural basis are racist for them yeah so let me say let me say a word or two about Mussolini who gets off as mm-hmm. kind of more of a nice guy the Italians conducted a genocide in Libya, which is not very well known. Perhaps a third of the population died. And in Cyrenaica, the most affected part, maybe a half, and it left an imprint on Libya. Uh, and uh, it was part of the reconquest of Libya. The, the Italians had taken it over from the Ottoman Empire in 1911, but they didn't really control it, and they only controlled a few coastal cities. And they conducted a genocidal campaign uh, that was just horrific. And it was more or less out of sight of Europe. And so most people don't really know about it. And only recently uh, has much of it come out. Uh, I know about that because a student I worked with who got his PhD here wrote a really terrific book about that. Uh, And he went through Italian archives uh, as well as what he could find in Libya. He's himself from Libya, so he knows Arabic. And he learned French and Italian and went through archives. Uh, the Italians did some really terrible things, and, um, including using poison gas in Ethiopia uh, when they invaded it in 1935. So, uh, you know, you're, you're you're right that Italy feels different than Germany in some in so many respects. But is it true that Italians wouldn't do something well? Italy wasn't very anti-Semitic. Mussolini went along with Hitler and passed some anti-Semitic laws, but he, they didn't actually start persecuting Jews on a large scale until the Germans took over Italy in 1943. So, so you're right about that. But that doesn't mean that Italians weren't willing to follow uh, and engage in mass killing. With respect to the, the Bolsheviks and the communists under Stalin, that's something that also... For example, he, he spoke about prior about his genocide of, of the Ukrainian people. Uh, Stalin, you know, the crazy thing about Hitler is he's pretty much universally acknowledged the worst person ever, which he is. Uh, but he probably shares that mantle with a couple others. And the crazy thing about Hitler is that he wasn't even the biggest killer at the time he was killing people, right? So you, you had Stalin, who's responsible for double the deaths. Um, do you think that? Do you think that communism is, is treated as less atrocious or murderous than Nazism? Uh, do you feel that Stalin's atrocities are, well, they're definitely not given the same weight in pop culture and in film and things. I've never seen a film about the Ukraine famine, for example. Um, do you think that that part of, of the story has been overlooked as well? Why, why do you think that is? So it depends. It, it depends by whom, but um, there uh, has been, and even now continue to be, some scholars on the left and some supporters of the left, more among intellectuals than in the wider public, at least in the United States. Though in Europe. In France and Italy, communist parties were strong for a long time. Uh, And they were willing to overlook Stalin's crimes and even overlook Mao's crimes. Um, People like uh, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, repeatedly and deliberately overlooked. In the United States, Chomsky does the same thing. Somehow he makes the United States seem as bad and never really was willing to confront, for example, the fact that the Khmer Rouge were evil on their own uh, and would brush it off by saying, oh, well, look, look at what happened in East Timor. Look at what the Americans have done. Right. That's another one, the Khmer Rouge, right? I mean, that's what, one third of the population murdered, which is, in, I mean, unfathomable. Basically, I never knew that before, you know. That's- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe not a third, but uh, but a quarter, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah. a whole lot. Yeah, so when Hitler was in power in the late 30s, 
there were plenty of people willing to excuse it, including Charles Lindbergh, for example. Uh, and uh, and people on the right, and even people like um, Senator Taft, uh, who was a, a Republican leader. He wasn't a Nazi. He didn't want to exterminate people, but he kept on coming up with excuses. Oh, you know, we we, we don't want to go to war with him. You know, yeah. And even there's, 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 there's a good book written about uh, the American ambassador sent to Germany, I forgot his name, by Franklin Roosevelt, who was uh, sort of anti-Semitic, but a kind of country club anti-Semite. That is to say, we don't want him in our country club. But yeah, I mean, we don't want to kill him or anything like that. He goes to Germany and he talks to Nazi leaders and says, oh, I understand, you know, Jews. Here. And then he, he realizes what's going on and he starts sending messages back and saying, this is not what we call anti-Semitism, this, this is really bad. And, it, and it's very hard for American officials to really grasp what's going on because they're familiar with anti-Semitism, which existed here. There were parts of Seattle where they wouldn't sell houses to Jews. Um, and of course, African-Americans couldn't buy houses except in a certain part of the city, but Jews as well. But extermination, the concentration camps, so what happens is when that is revealed at the end of World War II, there's such shock that it becomes very difficult to find excuses. Now, if American soldiers had been able to get into the worst concentration camps and find the mass burials in Ukraine or in Siberia and so on, we might have had the same shock. But Stalin won, and so it was possible to keep on denying it, even though there was already plenty of evidence. And it is shocking the degree. So someone like Robert Conquest, who was writing about that, tended to be dismissed by a lot of academics. And it turned out he was quite right. We already had enough evidence. But if it hadn't been for the discovery of the camps by American, well, and Soviets, they, they actually liberated more camps, but, but the Americans did too. And uh, I've read that Senator Jackson, um, who was a very popular senator, but he died unexpectedly in uh, what, 1983, I think, while still in the Senate, as a young congressman had actually gone and visited one of these camps. And that had made him uh, a uh, lifelong supporter of Jews in Israel. And he was often accused by his enemies of doing it because of Jewish money or something. No, no, no. He had such a shock. So um, you still have some people willing to defend Hitler, certainly, if you find some neo-Nazis around. But you don't get the kind of widespread support that communism had. Though it has, it has, it has less as some stuff was exposed. But uh, you think some of it was was the result of the Soviets being so much more successful at infiltrating us. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And also they were our ally. I mean, you know, World War II, when World War II starts, they're allied with the Germans and they split up Poland between them. But in 1941, in June 22nd, 1941, when the Germany invades the Soviet Union, all of a sudden the Communist parties everywhere turn against the Germans. And then they did, they, the Soviet Union provided immense amounts of help. There were three times as many German troops on the Eastern Front as in France to ward off the Allied landing in Normandy. And even so, the Allied Nor landing in Normandy was a close run thing. But if that whole army had been able to be thrown against the Normandy landings, you know, we might have failed. So the Soviet Union contributed, definitely. Uh, but it was a vicious, terrible regime. Uh, and now one of the things that Putin is doing is, is covering it up, just like in China, Xi Jinping is covering up Maoist crimes. Did Stalin kill more people than Hitler? Uh, yes, I think he did. But you know, he had he had a longer time. If Hitler had stayed in power, he would have he would he would have gotten rid of all of the Jews in Europe, and then he was going to exterminate much of the Slavic population, the Poles, the Ukrainians. They were all slated to be done in turned into slaves and worked to death. So, uh, so uh, we're just fortunate that, that uh, he lost before he was able to kill even more people. And at the end, at the end, he was insisting on killing more and more. They were killing to the very, very, very right. end, to the last day. 
and he had enough fanatic supporters in the SS and so on. Yeah, it's I, I, Jordan Peterson had a, a pretty interesting point about it about just how even by their own standards, their own six standards, they were willing to they were going against their own sort of sick goalposts, right? So they were willing to basically uh, chase down Jews, even if it meant compromising their military positions and compromising their military strategy. They put that higher emphasis on that and actually winning the war. It's just insane. And it's beyond the realm of rationality or evil. For Hitler and his very closest collaborators, certainly Himmler was like that. Uh, and Goering too. But for Hitler, very specifically, killing Jews was one of his primary goals. Uh, and Albert uh, Speer, who was very close to him, but was much more practical, sort of made appeals. You know, okay, let's work these people to death, but let's use them right. as slave labor. Yeah. But mm -hmm. let's use them. Right. And, and, rational, right. and, and, and stop using trains that need to carry vital material to carry Jews to concentration camps. But Hitler couldn't be dissuaded because that was that was at the heart of his belief. You know, in, in a way he there was a certain integrity to him. He he was a vicious anti-Semite. He thought Jews were a menace to the world and one of the goals in his life was to kill, to destroy and eliminate all of them. And so he, he couldn't be dissuaded. Your last chapter of the book, What Are the Lessons for Revolutions? You talk a little bit about that yeah. already in terms of the having the moderates not joining with the radical factions. What are some of your other lessons that we, we should be taking away from? Well, maybe the most important one is that uh, successful societies address their major problems. And if you leave some hanging around, you never know when they'll come back. And destabilize everything. And sometimes the unresolved problems are very obvious, like the fiscal situation in France, uh, worsened in the case of the French Revolution by the fact that the 1780s were a series of very bad harvests. So there was famine, but the government was really bankrupt. Or in the case of the Russian Revolution, you know, the Tsarist regime was hanging on, but they couldn't conduct World War One competently, and so everyone lost faith. Or the case of the Shah, uh, he wound up antagonizing everybody. Uh, and uh, so, um, or uh, we didn't discuss one of the cases I talked quite a lot about in my book, which was the Mexican Revolution, where you had a dictator who'd been holding on for a long time, had successes, but was really out of touch. And there were moderate forces who wanted to democratize, uh, open up for some reform, and he he held out against it, and then there was a revolution, and, and that took its own course. But it wound up also being very bloody. I mean, there were about 14 million people in Mexico at the time, in 1910, and by the time it all ended, about a million had died, uh, about half actually killed, and the other half from famine and disease caused by the Civil War. Uh, not that many Americans know how terrible it was. Of course, Mexicans know, you know. Uh, but uh, so uh, problems, if problems are addressed on time, and we've been fortunate in this country to have presidents and congresses that sometimes belatedly, but eventually address problems. And it seemed to me that, as you pointed out, with our racial problems, by the 70s, 80s, 90s, even as late as maybe only 10, 12 years ago, it seemed that finally it was done. But we have a lot of other problems that is far from our only problem. I mean, we can't get enough infrastructure done. Um, we do have an infrastructure bill, but it's not nearly sufficient. We have problems with our foreign policy that's disorganized. Uh, we have problems with inequality, which goes well beyond race, uh, which is providing fodder for extreme forms of, uh, of politics. Those are all danger signs. I mean, we're, we're not Lebanon yet, <laughs> but where problems weren't addressed for a long time, the country, the country is disintegrating. Um, so address problems in time 
be willing to compromise. Uh, the moderate right should be willing to work with the moderate left. And it used to be the case in the United States, and it no longer seems to be the case now. So, uh, so we're not at the stage where we're going to have an out-and-out civil war, but we're moving in that direction. And uh, other countries, it can be different things. France came very close to civil war over the Algerian War in the late 50s and early 60s. And, and, and there were military coups and, and there was violence. Uh, there were killings, there were assassinations. Uh, and then it, Charles de Gaulle actually set, saved the situation. Uh, and that particular problem was addressed in a very ruthless way. De Gaulle said, cut, Algeria gets its independence. We're out. We're not going to concentrate on that. So uh, we need to, to solve problems. Franklin Roosevelt was very good at that, at inspiring confidence and addressing some problems. They weren't all solved, but eventually a lot of them did get better. So um, that's what we have to watch. That's, that's really the only lesson is that moderates should work with moderates even if they disagree with them um, and not turn to the extremes. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.